0: Hey Mockingcasters, we want to take a couple minutes before the episode to update you on some exciting things happening in the sort of Mockingbird sphere. First up, we have just published the brand new issue of our print magazine. It is the sickness and health issue. We're going to talk about a couple of those articles in the magazine on this episode of the Mockingcast. Um, But if you are not a subscriber to the Mockingbird journal... I just could not commend it to you more. It is beautiful. It's wide ranging. It's profound, and it's full of the sorts of conversations um, that you hear on the Mockingcast. And uh, sort of we're informed by them, and in turn hope uh, you would be enriched by them. So if you're looking for more from Mockingbird, that is one place to start. I'll put the link to where you can subscribe uh, in the show notes. You can also just order just this issue, or you can become a monthly supporter of mockingbird all monthly supporters of mockingbird do receive a complimentary subscription highly highly recommended and we are just doing everything we can to get this in more hands cuz it's just that good um secondly we have started a new book club a virtual book club where every month uh, those who are interested will gather on zoom to discuss a particular book as sort of moderated by uh, some member of the kind of Mockingbird staff or volunteer uh, core I'll be doing the first one on Nick caves book faith hope and carnage on March 26th but I'll put the the link to where you can subs- to sign up for that uh, there's, there's a, and you can see the the whole schedule of what we'll be reading and when and who will be leading the discussions. Um, again, it's some of its fiction, some of its nonfiction, some of its theology, some of its poetry, some of its um, short stories. We're trying to, you know, cover a lot of ground, but always with the with the through line of grace. And finally, our New York conference is filling up. It, it happens April 27th to the 29th, if you've never been to a Mockingbird conference, this is uh, the kind of where it all started. It's our 15th time doing it, and um, this year, just this, the lineup is stellar. It could not be um, sort of a, a more perfect um place to come and and, and and experience what this whole project and this podcast that you've uh, stumbled upon is really about. That's April 27th to the 29th in New York City, and we only have uh, we're about six weeks out uh, 30 tickets left. So if you are planning to come, uh, please do uh, buy your ticket ASAP. I think that's it. Um, without any further ado, let's get going. <laughs> Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. It has been a second, you guys. Uh, We skipped an episode because I was traveling to Tejas and on the plane uh, to Austin, Texas, I ran into none other. Then rj and jamie Hamer. we tried to was, avoid you but you I hunted mean, us down they <laughs> acted like they didn't know me who's that guy with the huge headphones it was
1: did y'all really not know you were gonna see no i did not
0: know no no i mean, i knew
1: that dave was heading
2: crazy. to austin that weekend but i had no idea right. we both had connected connections in, i think
0: charlotte and we got up to the gate that's and we're like so hey funny. hey so i know you it was kind of fun rj's on the phone like put Putting out fires, you know, at the church, and and I'm just <laughs> I was on the phone. Music. I felt bad. Um, but we had a nice little visit. Awkward. We hugged it out, and then uh, yeah, it was great. We did, we didn't try to sit next to each other though. I mean, that was not like that's to a bridge go too, too far. far. I was
1: like, did you have a conversation? We're like, okay, but can you just like we don't have to like
0: do. Dave those. had better seats than we did, so I definitely did. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It was it was a you know Austin is. It feels like going to the West Coast at this point. It just that's everyone's yeah. uh, very image-conscious, shall we say? Um yeah. But uh, you know, now like in Charlottesville, where nobody delicious cares. food. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like it, it feels like a West Coast version of that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I got to hang out with these wonderful people at Covenant Presbyterian there, and um, you know. John Watson is who brought me there and loves the mocking cast. A big shout out to him and Aww. the wonderful work they're doing. So that was super cool. Um, it was a real highlight. And I got to also go to a place called Laity Lodge, which I'd never been to and just been uh, hearing about awesome. for years and years and years. And it's just a kind of like, well, it's like, a, it's, it's a landscape I was, I'd never seen, like kind of canyon, desert, river, uh, Texas thing, mm-hmm. hill, country, hill country, I guess it's called, and I was hill very country, uh, taken yeah. with it's it, legit. I, I understand why people like it, it's, it's, it's beautiful, yeah, gorgeous. yeah. Sarah, what's going on with you? Ooh, well, we're about to
1: go on spring break, so... um Ooh, early. No, just yeah. Just getting... Next week? Yeah.
0: Next
2: week?
1: Next week. Awesome. Just kind of getting ready for that. Yeah, we're headed to Mississippi, which my children are now at a point where they're like, you know, people go places other than Mississippi, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: And I'm like, I know, but that's where we're going again. So, yeah, we're good. My brother uh, had his... We had the baby shower for he and his wife um, this past weekend, and... You know, I feel like it was another major milestone we managed to survive given the the very present absence. Yeah. So, that that felt like a, a a kind of an accomplishment to be honest with you. So, yeah, we're good. Mm.
0: RJ, mm-hmm. what do you have to say?
2: We're also doing well. We had a great time visiting uh my oldest son in Austin and we basically just either ate food Or binge-watched Full Swing on Netflix for the entire weekend, Uh. which was great because my wife and I was just like, the two of us, we love our six-year-old, but it's nice to have a break. And so the two of us just kind of chilled. The weather wasn't that great. It was a little cloudy and and cold and rainy and stuff, but it was actually nice. It was the perfect excuse to sort of Mm. do nothing and actually lay low. And that was really, really nice. Full
0: Swing is that Netflix series of sort of documentaries about... Golfers it is which is sounds like the most
2: uh boring thing on earth, especially <laughs> if you're not a big golf fan. I'm honestly not a big golf fan, and Jamie does not like golf at all, but it's so. Good. Yeah. And especially because it's just like one really good dad after another. Like, not just the golfers themselves, but their fathers. And you have this image in your head of these super, you know, um, demanding sports parents. You know, and Tiger
0: Woods' dad. That's well, the, yeah. that's He's the, the image. easy archetype of but
2: it. But these yeah. dads are not Tiger Woods dads. Mm. Some of these dads had, you know, these had fathers like Tiger Woods dads, but they said, I'm not going to raise my son like that. I'm always going to remind him that golf is a game. It's a game, mm-hmm. and it should be fun. And it was very encouraging on that, on that huh. level. So I, I commend it to you if you've not watched it. When you're done watching The Chosen, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: every, time, every now and, and again, Lotus. that'll like pop into my brain. Yeah. It'll be like, you haven't watched The Chosen yet. And I'm like, yep, not the time I right now. I picked it back
2: <laughs> up uh, this week because I had a day where I was, mm-hmm. just, I was feeling kind of not well. And I had not uh-huh. watched it in a while, and I and I cried again.
1: I cried oh again. Oh my it's, gosh! Well, it's good, have, man. It's good. People have sent me messages that are like, "I know that RJ said it, and you're not going to listen to him." But it's really good. I <laughs> because RJ's taste too. is terrible. I'm like, okay, like, have, but have you seen White Lotus? You know, <laughs> I have
2: not. I have been watching Last of Us though, which is probably at least as depressing as so White Lotus, beautiful. right? Beautiful. It's yeah. really the yeah, last episode would, was yeah. bleak. Ooh. Was it? Well, I we yeah.
1: well. I have to say, I mean, zombie you know, apocalypse,
2: it's, but yeah.
1: it's hard. Yeah, it's it is hard. It's it, not it's a white subject.
0: It's a hard life when you're being invaded by mushroom zombies. Yes. It is. Um, but hey, Pedro Pascal, he's he's, he's amazing. What, what do they call him, Daddy? Um. So, well, let's. <laughs> we're going to cut that. that <laughs> is we're what, not cutting we're that. Not. And are we sure it's not Daddy? Okay. So.
1: <laughs>
0: that is um. Well, let's, uh, I, uh, let's actually, some, something sort of big did happen that you uh, didn't mention, Sarah, and that Sarah mm-hmm. broke her writer's block um, yeah. uh, for a, a shining moment, and you wrote something called One Grace, shining Grace moment. for Almond Moms, Grace for Almond Moms. This is a fresh uh, uh, term to me, but it made perfect sense when I read it, and I, I'm going to read a little bit of it to you guys. This is uh, you writing, Sarah. Uh, My mother's mother put her on her first diet when she was in elementary school. She would skip lunch at school and eat a hamburger patty when she got home. I find myself astonished that my grandmother, who had survived the Depression with all of her family's food shortages and poverty, would have the capacity to do such a thing. But that's how important it is to be a thin woman in America. There have been some recent very funny videos on social media that young women have made describing their mothers as, quote-unquote, almond moms. The concept came from an episode of the Housewives television franchise. In it, a mother suggests to her very hungry daughter that she simply have a few almonds. Almond moms might suggest that you, quote, save your calories for the big meal, or suggest that you should get a bowl for those chips instead of mindlessly eating them from the bag. They will pull out the classic, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips— Phrase. These observations are meant to be relatable and funny, but they also feel deeply sad to me because I have my own inner almond mom, just like my mother did, just like her mother did. And if we think these almond moms are saying this to their kids is terrible, just imagine what they're saying to themselves. Uh. While it's easy to dismiss these mothers as ill-informed and cruel, it seems to haunt all of us, regardless of how much we measure up. Many women have seasons of their lives where we are home with children, and there are days that it can feel as though we are seemingly little value, and so control over our bodies becomes the focus. The highest iteration of womanhood has been to be the thinnest one in the room, no matter where that room exists. To be the thinnest is to be the best. So I pray for grace for the almond moms I know, myself included. We cannot shame ourselves into breaking the curse of thinness. We can only ask that God would rescue us from even that burden, silly as it may feel. For the sake of our daughters, of course, but also for the sake of ourselves. We can also laugh at ourselves and the ridiculousness of trying to perfect something, I guess the body, that is always and forever headed towards the grave. Remember that death is imminent and that the goodness of Jesus is true. And then find some humor to hold on to. When my mother died, a friend came over to help me get her ashes into the urn I ordered. They almost didn't fit. I yelled out, if you just would have stuck with the diets, mom. And I could hear my mom laughing with us. So Sarah what t- t- talk to us about this um clearly uh, it struck a chord with a lot of people and um I although I was unaware of the the almond moms phenomenon I'm, I'm no stranger to the fact that the the pressure that women feel to be thin um uh, is just abiding and c- crushing and um free floating almost at this point but talk to us I I want to hear hear more of what you're thinking
1: yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have to say, I, I now I work with college students and I do hope and pray and I feel, and maybe it's just the population I work with, um, I feel like they are not as fixated on thinness, mm. but you know, when I was growing up, um, it was like Britney Spears, low cut jeans, uh, you know, preferably a belly ring, <laughs> you know, if, if your abs are flat enough for such, such a device, <laughs> Um, just like, you know, thinness was the only, the way, the truth in the life. I mean, it really was. And, and I'm starting to see, I'm hoping a shift, but that doesn't mean that those of us who, um, were sort of just in, I mean, we, we were run over by a dump truck with the gospel of thinness as, uh, children, it doesn't mean that, you know, that we don't still carry some of that. And, you know, it's interesting to age, right? Because I love seeing these young women offer critique. Um, most of all, cause it, it tells me that they're, they're thinking about things differently, right? They, they're not fixating so much on thinness, but it also like as i'm aging i see you know you just get more grace um goggles <laughs> i think as you age and you see more you see the the bigger landscape and you see the mothers that are saying these crushing things to their their children really their daughters and you're like oh, but what is lurking inside you you know that this is coming out of your mouth and i think i just hoped you know i can't make all your moms die <laughs> Um, I'm, but, I'm glad but, uh, if only I had that power. Yeah, I don't have that. I don't have that power. But I can tell you that when your mom dies, you realize how stupid worrying about all that stuff was. Yes. And it just kind of frees you even more. So I was hoping, in referencing her ashes at the end, that I could offer just a little bit of the freedom that I, that I feel like I have Mm. now, you know, cause you just, there's nothing like putting your mother's ashes in an urn to remind you that all those years of her worrying and, and honestly, the years of my grandmother putting this on her, um, were just such a sad waste of time and energy. So, yeah,
0: gosh, what an image, Uh, uh, RJ, what what do you think about this?
2: I had a friend that made me think of who's, um, when I was younger, an, a woman, and her mom always referred to her as um, the big one, because there were two girls oh in the family, God. and she oh happened gosh. to be like a... Ty- a li- and she's, she was thin and beautiful and perfect, but she was a little bit bigger than her right. sister. Now, of course, the irony right. is that their mother was bigger than either of them, um, mm-hmm. but I wonder what it is about um, sort of the mother-daughter and the father-son relationship that is always so fraught, right? You hear mommy's, uh, yeah. um, uh, mama's boy, and you hear daddy's little girl. Yeah. You know, there's something yeah. when, it's, when it's sort of cross uh, gender, cross sex, then it somehow c- there's room for more grace, more affirmation, but when it's um, the yeah. same... Uh, it's uh, you know there's, something about, there's a lot of projection that goes on, and and your mm. your child becomes a, a vehicle for your own insecurities and your own um, you know vicarious uh, living or maybe um, yeah. dreams you didn't quite achieve or and it's really just it's hurtful and so so they're just yeah. all the the body images body image stuff both ways <laughs> you know you're either you're either totally. you're either not thin enough. Or if you are yeah. if you are pretty, then that's dangerous. Yeah. That, that it's dangerous both yeah. ways. Um And totally. how women kind of carry yeah. that. And that's really, um, that's hard. That's really hard. Yeah. It
1: is hard. I mean, there's a relief, honestly, in like being 40. Like when I look back, I remember what it felt like to be, and now I work with women this age, but, you know, 22 years old and I know when, oh, people, women always recoil when I say this, but like sort of your peak mm. beauty, you know? And there's so much focus and pressure and and the need for perfection at that point. It's really terrifying. Yeah, um, yeah. happy International Women's well, that's Day! Right. That was yesterday. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, I I just I I think the. You know, I just think the cure for everything is to remember how close we are to death. I really mm. do. Uh, all our worries and our anxieties, because it just puts it all in perspective. Like, is this actually something that I need to worry about? And you know, if you're somebody that really feels like you might have, especially as a mom, have jealousy issues towards your daughter, I don't, I, I don't know what the father son dynamic is really like, but I do know what that mm. is like, and um, get some help. Cause it just won't, you know, RJ, you're so right. Cause when we project onto our kids, they are such blank slates. Like they have no idea what's yeah. happening, you know, like, and you've got a whole world that you're putting onto them. Yeah. So, to me, it boils
2: down to, can, um, can you see your children? And then actually as a ch- as a child, your parents, can you see your children as, a separate individual from yourself, and not just yeah. a projection or a reflection of who you are. Can you can you stop seeing everything that your kid does as a reflection on you, for good or for ill, and just love right. them as they are as right. a person, and mm-hmm. kind of let that let that go? And I I will say, as a kid, yeah. I I remember being very embarrassed about my parents. <laughs> you know, you we all have that moment where we're like, mm-hmm. oh my God, my parents are the most embarrassing mm-hmm. people in the world. Mm-hmm. And then I remember thinking about it for a second being like, Well wait, but I don't I don't judge my friends based on their parents. I don't actually. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe I can not feel so embarrassed of my parents because no one's looking at me through the yeah. lens of my parents, I don't think. You know? Anyway.
0: Yeah, it's really it's really hard when especially you know, weight gain is seen as such a, like a moral failure, you know, and, and it's it's yeah. really not, from what I can tell, it's not like a, certainly it's not a Christian category. I remember working for a ministry that um, they were looking to hire someone, and this is a woman, a f- position they were looking to hire, and they're, one of the people who... Um, who applied was, you know, larger and there was this legitimate discussion in the room that was led by the other women about whether it would be an impediment to ministry to have her as sort of a witness to their, as a part of the church. And I, and, and there was, you know, the men were taking it seriously though. We were all felt like immediately like, let's not say anything. Oh my God, you know, run for the hills. Um, But I remember like feeling like, did I really conflicted. I wanted to say like, well, wait a second. If she's not good for the position, let's talk about that. But this should not be as part of, I mean, regardless of the legal implications, but it's like, we're talking about ministry. We're not, this is not a a gym or something. And even if it were, but I remember being shocked that, um, but You know, there's also studies that show all this stuff about, you know, uh, being paid higher if you're thin, you know, like, or getting different jobs. Uh, And the the world does. So the world does seem to certainly operate this way and probably operates this way much more than most men are aware of
1: and and that's that's the that is actually the access point for grace is that these moms are generally afraid afraid for their daughters won't have the same opportunities they're afraid for their daughters right like they're afraid and it's and yes it's ridiculous and yes it's not fruitful but like that is what's happening is they are afraid like you will miss out on opportunities if you don't present a certain way or you know um you will get made fun of the way i was made fun of when i was a kid and like you know and not rj to your point not seeing these children like in a whole different environment in the year 2023 you know like like just just only seeing yourself and your fear um in the kid and i you know we do all kinds of things right based on that it's it goes way beyond this but i did think this was like a very interesting
0: uh way in Mm. No, that's good, because you're right, I do think there's a sense in which parents look to their children to redeem their own yes. past, and yes. for their, it's like their second mm-hmm. chance at glory, yes. I and mean, just stage moms, and, and, and you know... Uh, yeah, you or t- second t- chance or, to not hurt. Or, <laughs> <laughs> frankly, or golf dads of a certain yes. type, or baseball dads. dads, or whatever, you yeah. you, you see this yeah. all the time, but to to at least have an entry point for Grace to say right or wrong this is how it seems to work and their people are petrified that their children will will hurt in the way that they did and, yeah. you know, to be honest with you yeah like i think of the three here i'm not i don't know if this is positive but i think i'm the only one that shopped in the husky section for myself as a kid uh, so i yeah. had i just have a you know I, I was i was a larger before i started swimming i just i was chubby and um it makes a mark on you that you never sort of leave behind. And so I'm conscious of it with my own, uh, children and the, who also have the same body yeah. type. And, uh, we yeah. end up having these discussions all the time, you know, not all the time, but we try to have these discussions. Um, and my wife and I do, and I don't, we haven't solved it in any way, but I remember my brother, John saying the second you make it an issue, it's going to become a shame thing there. You know, the, 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 second you talk about it almost at, at all. Totally. Um, and that's totally. with, the, with young boys, it's not rather than G- girls so I, I i i i guess i what i'm saying is your article produced compassion in what i was reading um because it is easy to judge mothers who are really hard on their daughters for e- eating potato chips you know that's <laughs> for eating yeah, e- eating, yeah, eating. E- e- for eating <laughs> they're almost like yeah, the most convenient I mean, villain we could find right you know
1: yeah i i do i you know i it's funny that the thing that's coming up for me right now is, um, you know, because I think my mom had clearly had this. I mean, I remember my mom. God bless Deborah. She's dead. I can tell the stories now. But when this was not that long ago and her mom was still alive and her mom was in her 90s and my mom had found this jacket she relaxed in the department store. The three of us were shopping together. Like literally we had broken my dementia ridden uh, grandmother out of, you know, the old folks home in the Delta and just to go to the department store and shop and we're in there and my mom put on a jacket and my grandmother, like my grandmother was suddenly, you know, 35 and my mom was suddenly oh my eight. gosh, and she leaned back and she said, Debra, turn around. Let me see the back. And like, how does your butt <laughs> look? And my mom like rolled her eyes and did it. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like this is. Um, but I remember my grandmother at one point, she would comment a lot on appearance. She was a, um, a hairstylist. Uh, and so she was very into physical appearance. She was a very beautiful woman. And, I uh, remember her going after me about what I looked like, and my mo- we were all in a hotel room together. My mother looked up, and she goes, "Lois, you need to shut up." <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think that is the best way to curb any feelings of shame if you're looking for. The
0: well, points. let's we're going to move into <laughs> uh, further into this uh, this subject because you know Mockingbird, I, as I mentioned in the opening, we have a new issue of our incredible print magazine uh, on sickness and health, and one of the people we interview is uh, a journalist named Rena Raphael. Rena's actually speaking at our New York City conference. She's is this brilliant journalist who used to work at Goop, and is, is, she's written a book called The Gospel of Wellness, Gyms, Gurus, Goop, and the False Promise of Self-Care. And it's a fascinating mm. book. Um, she says that it's, her research is, more, is about more than just debunking wellness myths. It's, quote, about American women's search for a cure to all that ails them and their journey to regain something that they believe they've lost. Now, Megan Ritchie, uh, one of the co-editors of our magazine, interviewed her, and Megan started out by saying that there's this great line in the book, Rena where you cite, 72% of moms are stressed about how stressed they are. (laughs) She says, I'm not a mom, but I really relate to that. And Rena responds. She says, We have this perfectionistic, uh, performative idea of what wellness is, right? I recently did a story for the LA Times where I was speaking to therapists who worked with teen girls. These girls were becoming stressed out about not having enough time to do skincare masks and take bubble baths. They were blaming themselves for being stressed, even though, you know. Life can be very stressful for teens, but they had this idea that they needed to set aside more time for basically skincare rituals. It's just absurd. But all of that is in addition to how this industry preys on women and their vulnerabilities and desires. For example, because of body image pressures, diet culture has snuck into wellness. You'll see a bunch of supplements for self-care that are really about beauty or anti-aging. Then she goes on. She says something interesting. She says, I think a lot of the ink that we used to spend on fashion is now being spent on wellness so which means the people who are writing about it often have little to no training in health or science reporting and it's rarely impressed on them that they should be looking under the hood of these claims now i'm not saying today when you talked about the why here that the pursuit of health is literally a religion what i'm saying is it's adopting a framework similar to religion in the sense that it's regulatory and prescriptive And I don't think it's a coincidence that many of the people most adoptive of wellness culture are also the ones moving further and further away from organized religion. This idea Mm. of becoming as healthy as you can really does offer people a sense of purpose, community, identity, the kind of things organized religion used to offer us. But she says one of the reasons she wrote the book was, Sarah, um, her father died. And she says this, I realized uh, that no one from my gym was going to come to my house with a casserole. Yeah. Now, she's an observant uh, Jew, uh, Rena is. Um, but she says this, and when people are looking to their gym or their fitness instructors for life lessons, oftentimes what they, what they get are very generic platitudes that really lack substantial meaning and don't necessarily apply to specific episodes in people's lives. Grief being one of them. For me, the idea of going to my gym during grief was just absolutely absurd. The gym wasn't going to offer any memorial rites or anything beyond essentially what whittled down to working on your body. And we all have to take care of our bodies, but this conflation of spiritual dogma with what is essentially a business can become conflicting. So instead, she found solace in the Jewish prayers of her youth.
1: I mean... Good for her. There's goodness. a
0: lot of insights in this. I mean, that's just a small part of our interview. Yeah. But I think for, first of all, like, the fact that we write that, that wellness is sort of, um, we, we talk about wellness the way we used to talk about fashion and that like mm. it, it, those are the same people writing about it. And it's not, it's, it's technically supposed to be science if it's actually about wellness the search for something religious, some sort of meaning that goes on behind wellness culture. And, um, but also she, she feels deeply, um, compassionate for people. Like she, she, there's a lot of compassion. It probably didn't come off in the excerpts I read. Um, but the, the fact that you're being, str- this thing is supposed to help you feel better is actually becoming a new source of stress, a new burden. Like the girls being stressed about not having enough time for their skincare rituals or the moms being stressed about how stressed they are. That sounds a little bit like a curse uh, to me. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not as ensconced in this as, as you might be, Sarah. Uh, or...
1: I mean, a, a curse is such a good word for it. Like it is a curse. I mean, it feels like we've been cursed, you know, that we have to, it's one more thing to keep up with. And, and also like the teenage girls, y'all come on now. I was out in the sun slathering oil on my face. Just like, you know, bake me, please. Um, I mean, it's just so funny to me that they're like, the just
2: butter me up.
1: like, I think I got into skincare when I turned 30, you know, and I'm not sure my skin looks a whole lot better. I, you know, I don't know. I just, I mean, we, this is what we know. Okay. This is what we know. Botox, retinol, fillers, Rogaine. These things work. None of the rest of the stuff works. Ozempic. So yeah, (laughs) Ozempic. And so what is it? I mean, I think it's such a great question she's asking is like, what, What is it that ails us that we're seeking a cure for Mm. ultimately? Because these aren't things that cure. I mean, y'all know I've tried every snake oil thing for hair out there, Mm. right? And ultimately, the only thing that's worked has been the actual medicine that a dermatologist gives me. But clearly, there is a need for people to feel... I mean, I do think there's connection. Other people. I also just think it's control, right? In a world, I keep thinking of that Anne Lamott quote that we used: um, "So loved, so ruined, and control over so little." Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. RJ, what do you think? What? Where are you with this? What are your? What are? Who's your wellness
2: guru, RJ? Oh, uh, who is my wellness guru? I don't know. Jesus. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I think a lot of it stems from um, what we've talked a lot about, where the, uh, the American obsession with happiness and that the the natural state of the human person is to be happy, which is just not true,
1: right? You know, yes, and that if we it's could, not it's not
2: true. And if we could just give ourselves permission every so often to be unhappy, or tired, or confused, or exhibit any negative emotion and not feel guilty about it, uh, that would go a long way. And I'm speaking to myself. You know, I was I was feeling uh, real, uh, under the weather on Tuesday and sort of half of Wednesday, and I'm looking for every reason why it's my fault. You know, and my wife is just like, RJ, you're sick. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be mm-hmm. sick. It's not your fault. Just like, mm-hmm. take it easy and you'll get better. Um, but I feel guilty for oh being... Oh my gosh,
1: you're just... In a few, sorry, R.J., but like next week, I think it's the next week. It's not this Sunday. Is the guy the healing the pools of Siloam? You know, and they say like. Like, what did his parents do, right? Yes, what, what, yes. what did he do in the womb that, yes. like, he, he's blind now? How yeah. is this his fault?
2: Yes. And that's, uh, I think that's the curse of America. That's the dark side of American positivity, mm-hmm. which has a lot of wonderful things to commend it. We get stuff done and we, we, got, do. kind of, we got kind of a cool culture here, mm-hmm. you know, but the dark side is like, God forbid you ever have a moment of unhappiness. Um, and because then you feel not just unhappy but you feel guilty on top of being unhappy because I ought to be happy all the time
0: I want to say that she does mention that like wellness culture the the, the popularity of it should be not um, it, it cannot first of all there is an economic aspect to this and it seems to make tons of money. Like it, yeah. it, it's very successful to appeal because you're appealing to people's insecurities. But secondly, she says it should be a measure of how much pain people are in mm-hmm. <laughs> and how unhappy. And we've talked about, we talked last, I think last week about the sort of female unhappiness or we could talk about male unhappiness. It's just that people are very um, sad and I think that they're looking for an answer, and we're we're all are. And so you can't blame folks for for uh, aggressively looking to, you know, I don't know what, what what it is, new sleep technologies or something like that. Um, they're so. What's your number? <laughs> is what's it, your sleep it, number?
2: Sleep <laughs> actually, yeah.
0: I yeah. Just,
1: like I literally do like a cost analysis now. Like that's where I am with this stuff. So I'm like, okay, let's say I okay, let's say I start. A magical hair treatment. Okay, let's well, say I take these vitamins and they do what they have promised. Although we know that's not going to do that because that's not how it works. And it is eighty dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I think, well, okay. At what point do I not want hair? So am I doing this for my lifetime? You know what I mean? Like I literally start to think that, and then and then I and then it kind of pulls me back from it. But I have to like do some pretty serious like
2: cost Gymnastics. benefit analysis yeah
1: i totally do i mean mm. it's why i haven't started botox all my friends have done botox my best friend sat me down the other day and was like girl it's time
2: mm-hmm. and i'm like
1: <laughs> but that's like once i started you know like it's i don't know it feels like this the all the, these can all to me feel like these like everyone's getting on the train we've all just got to agree to it and and like I I'm just I don't know if I want to yet so mm. I don't know it's hard.
0: When do I want to
2: look like Joan Rivers?
0: I don't know. hundred percent. <laughs> she
1: right gets now.
0: she gets into like um they, they they talk about manifestation kind of the people who are manifestation gurus. Yeah. And they they talk they she. What does that
2: mean? Uh,
1: that's, that's what I am. Hello. It's
0: like you're can, a manifestation guru. <laughs> no, I'm not. But
1: my college students use that word. So what does that even
0: mean? Like but, you're
1: manifesting something. You you're,
0: you're, because the way you're thinking about something is. Made Making it happen, and it's it's oh, slightly superstitious, like but it's secret. also the it's, secret. It's, if you yeah. put out good energy, it'll come to you. You it's, know, thanks, Oprah. It's a little bit like that, but I guess I guess uh, name it and claim it. Rena talks to go, going to a. Uh, you know, uh, uh, some sort of seminar on manifestation. And she asks the question, is like, so are you telling me that the Jews who died in the Holocaust just weren't manifesting their uh, release hard enough? And yeah, and it's just exactly. like you could hear a pin drop. And um, Oof, it was it. heavy. And she said that, you know, they said that, most of the manifestation seminars that she had gone to for the sake of the book were filled with sort of Gen Z and millennial women and who were fairly comfortable. They weren't actually trying to meet basic needs. The, the, The manifestation gurus were not going into the slums, you know, they, they were, they were, (laughs)
1: because <laughs> do- their trickery doesn't work there you know what i mean like it can work when we've got like a yale education and you know we live in suburbia then you can feel like you're manifesting all kinds of things
2: mm. so let me just say that the root of that is i am in control of everything with my yeah. mind i am yeah. god yeah. I am God yes. and I can control reality yeah. with my mind. Let's yeah. just call that what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. well, yeah.
0: here you have two different, you know, we've talked about like different attempts to solve inner, inner pain, or, you know, one of Sarah, you talked about how we cannot shame ourselves, people into thinness or health or something right. like that. And she's basically saying the same sort of thing that you can, you can sell them products, but it's not going to actually cure them. Um, you can, uh, yeah, I'd love the line about the casserole in the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, uh. And there, we all know on one level, I think that these things don't actually work, but uh, another way to, that we try to address pain and sin and trouble, I think, is through language and changing the language we use. And there was an unbelievably, it was a long but powerful article in The Atlantic this past week called The Moral Case Against Equity Language. This is by George... Packer. Now, bear with me. This is a sort of uh, um, hot potato. Um, it's, the Sierra Club, I guess, just published an equity language guide. It discourages using words, the words stand, Americans, blind, and crazy. The first two fail at inclusion because not everyone can stand and not everyone is living in this country as a citizen. The third and fourth, even as figures of speech, like legislators are blind to climate change, are insulting to the disabled. And so he goes through the various uh, examples of this, and we all, I mean, at least in my church denomination, this is very uh, familiar territory. This is what he writes, though. He says, the rationale for equity language guides is hard to fault. They seek a world without oppression and injustice. Because achieving this goal is beyond anyone's power, they turn to what can be controlled, and they try to purge language until it leaves no one out and can't harm those who already suffer. Avoiding slurs, calling attention to inadvertent insults, and speaking to people with dignity are essential things in any decent society. It's polite to address people as they request, and context always matters. A therapist is unlikely to use terms with a patient that she would use with a colleague. But it isn't the job of writers to present people as they want to be presented. Writers owe allegiance to their readers and to the truth. The universal mission of equity language is a quest for salvation, not political reform or personal courtesy. A Protestant quest, (laughs) and despite the guides' aversion to any reference to U.S. citizenship, an American one, for we do nothing by half measures. The guides follow the grammar of Puritan preaching to the last clause. Once you have embarked on this expedition, you can't stop at Oriental or Thug, because that would leave far too much evil at large. So you take off in hot pursuit of, quote, Gentrification, or legal residence, food these are terms, food stamps, and gun control, until the last sin is hunted down and made right, which can never happen in a fallen world. Here we go. This is the final what he has to say. This huge expense of energy to purify language reveals a weakened belief in more material forms of progress. The guides want to make the ugliness of our society disappear by linguistic fiat. Even by their own lights, they do more ill than good, not because of their absurd bans on ordinary words like congresswoman or expat or the self-torture they require of conscientious users, but because they make it impossible to face squarely the wrongs they want to right, which is the starting point for any change. Prison does not become a less brutal place by calling someone locked up uh, in one a person experiencing the criminal justice system obesity isn't any healthier for people with quote high weight it's hard to know who is likely to be harmed by a phrase like native new yorker or under fire i doubt that even the writers of the guides are truly offended but the people in the slums of mumbai know they're poor they can't afford to wrap themselves in soft sheets of euphemism equity language doesn't fool anyone who's lives with real afflictions it's meant to spare only the feelings of those who use it the reason I, I get to this is we're going to talk about theories of change, how people change, how things uh, change. And I think that we're all, this is not actually, I don't think that uh, new of a phenomenon. I think it's got long roots, but if we just use the right words, uh, people will mean the right things and they will, uh, the problems will cease. And, um, the purity language, you know, it's, it's a real thing and it becomes a huge burden around folks. Um, but he's saying that in fact the real purpose here is to make the people talking about these problems feel better about themselves rather than the actual ones experiencing the problems. Um,
1: I mean, I, I, I do buy this, but everything is up for grabs in terms of like, we have to get it all right, you know? And I, as somebody who tends to lean left, want to get it all right. I really do. And I work with people who, you know, these young people, they, they want to, they want me to get it all right. They want to be all right all the time. But sometimes that just doesn't happen. And sometimes we're not all up to date. And like, I, I, and sometimes the real issue is just being completely avoided because we, you know, we want to, I don't know. I can see it sometimes as a tactic to stop conversation about one thing to lead to. I mean, I just think it can become this real like overcorrective way of not really communicating with each other. And, you know, when I think about my family in Mississippi who tends to lean more to the right, um, I'm not talking about you, Becky. Um, (laughs) I, um, I would miss out on so much relationship with them and interaction and love and joy with them. If I corrected them in conversation like that, right? Like I would totally miss out on that. So it's like when it becomes a relationship barrier, I think we we're kind of, I know I shouldn't say this, but shooting ourselves in the foot because you know, it's, you're not able to actually like ha- you're not able to have a whole beautiful conversation with this person. It also just assumes a rightness that's very classist to me. It is
0: very classist. There's no question of it. That's always the the ghost at the table that no one wants to talk about when these conversations. Yeah. But the, I would say that, um, you know, I, I I had to live in, lived in Germany for a while when I was a kid and had to be thrust into, you know, speaking German in, in high school. And it was not easy. And uh, the only way to do it is to kind of uh, start just start speaking and, you know, you make mistakes. And Mm -hmm. there was one, I had one guy who wanted to be my friend, but he was constantly correcting my German. And uh -uh. um, I just ultimately, I just didn't want to hang out with him anymore because I thought to myself, I, I have no, uh, yes, I'm getting it wrong, and there's going to be, I want to get better at how I'm speaking. But if you keep correcting me while I'm doing this, it becomes a power thing where you're always standing above me, and I don't feel comfortable and I feel criticized, and I just want to run in the opposite direction. That's, that's how I think. I mean, I, I think a lot of this equity language stuff, it feels to me increasingly like code switching. Like if I'm in a, a progressive space, I know. I have some sense of words I can use and not use. And if I'm mm-hmm. in a, a more conservative space, I know what words I can use. And in fact, like if you're in academia, all the kids who have any, any sort of traditional leanings have to learn to speak two languages. It's just, mm-hmm. that's sort of where you, that's the world you're going to live in. But I think that it, the attempt to change people's hearts by changing the words they use is simply, it's, it's profoundly, if that's really what's going on. And I know that you're actually, you're really just trying to see safeguard certain you're trying to make it so some people don't feel like they're constantly being insulted through language that is practices that are um difficult but or racist or biased or or the result of some uh, you know ignorance but it you're not going to affect actual change at any level if you're simply if you think you can do it through changing the words people use i just don't think that's how anyone changes rj what do you think
2: i agree i mean i I mean, first of all, when you're talking there, it just sounds like you're talking about different approaches to church, for one. You know, like, mm. it can, is church a place where people have the freedom to sort of be themselves and work it out? And they may even be a little bit—if they're really working it out and they're experiencing God's grace, they may even be a little bit worse in church than they would in their regular life because they mm-hmm. feel that like they're sort of working the dross out. <laughs> yeah. But if your approach to Christianity or religion is to be constantly correcting people who are making mistakes, <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> That's not the kind of church I want to be a part of. Um so it, it it's it's it feels very religious. Um, as we're talking about the the language that people use. Um, it reminded me of uh, The Last Emperor. Remember the movie The Last Emperor? About The Last Emperor of China? Mm. You guys seen that? Bernardo yeah. Bertolucci won nice. like 11 Oscars like 30 years ago. Oh, no, it's a really beautiful movie. But in that, um, The Last Emperor after the Cultural mm-hmm. Revolution uh, goes to like re-education camp, you know, one of oh, these wow. kind of, and he's there for a while and he and he, there's a man who's in charge of the camp who's pretty harsh, but they he they finally develop a relationship and the, the person who was the emperor comes to see him is A pretty fair guy, and then he's let out of this uh, re-education camp and to go live his life and then he's walking down the street one day and he sees a bunch of student revolutionaries who um, have have bound this man who was the head of the reeducation camp because he he wasn't he didn't gone far enough. You know, mm-hmm. so, so the person who is part of the first revolution is then branded a counter-revolutionary and persecuted. And the last emperor uh, says, I, I know this man. He's, he's a good man. He's a good man. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't enough. You know, it, just, it keeps on going and keeps on going. And, and when does it end? Purity. You know, you, yeah. Yeah, you, it, it's the purity spiral, right? The, the prophets of this new purity, 30 years from now, 10 years from now, they won't be pure enough. You know, it, it, it never ends. It never ends, so I, I like you said, Sarah, in an interpersonal level, of course, I want to treat someone with gentleness totally. and yeah. respect and kindness yeah. and love, yeah. and if someone asks me to um, say something a certain way, I, I'm happy to do that, yeah um but but to think that I've got a constantly worried about what might come out of my mouth because it might be the wrong thing or, or, um, offend someone somewhere.
1: Well, I just, it makes me think of parenting and how you can tell a kid like to do something in a certain way, uh, in a really aggressive, like you can be really aggressive and yell at a kid and they'll do what they'll do what you ask them to do. Like you're bigger than they are. You're louder than they are, whatever. Right. Um, but they won't mean it. Mm you know, but if you take the time to be in relationship with your kid and love them and say, Hey, like, this is a better way of doing this because of this. And like, you're present to them, they'll like, they, it's like flowers to the sunlight. Like they're just like, Oh, this is what we do. And this is why, and it's such a beautiful process. And I just think we've lost our sense of nuance, our sense of tenderness and also, like, if you're living in this world, and I think for a lot of people that are policing language, it's, you know, they're almond moms at the end of the day, right? Like, it's like, I'm being terrorized in my own head. I'm going to terrorize you. Like, I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm allegedly keeping you safe just like I'm keeping me safe. But really, I'm just terrorizing everyone around me. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm happy, like, I definitely am, am happy to, to get on board with whatever, whatever language people want me to have with them interpersonally. But it is, like, I don't want to live in a world where I'm constantly being corrected. Like, that's, mm. I don't know.
0: But I also think, like, the attempt to label, um, use different words to describe, uh, you know, for, you know, the, as the example of, like, uh, you're not in prison, you're a person who's experiencing the criminal justice system. I mean, like that, it's true. It's not like, it's not news to that person. You know, the only person, the person who's feeling better in that situation is the person not... Acknowledging them as a prisoner or the and and because if you 're in there i 'm sure you feel imprisoned and yeah. um if, if anything it's it's driving a wedge between you and he actually uses a couple of examples of you know descriptions that sort of people would use to describe their own experience and that if you 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 completely basically gentrify even though that 's not the word you 're supposed to use but if you if you suck any kind of um you know, value judgment from the language, you just end up completely distancing yourself from that person's actual experience of their situation. I mean, one of the the examples I always find is like, you know, in, in the world where you have to, what do you say, Latina, Latino, or Latinx, and every... Every person of a Latin background I've talked to seems to say, don't say Latinx. Um, we don't like it. No one ever asked us. And, like, stop it. It it <laughs> makes a mockery of our language. But then if I'm in sort of basically white spaces, that's all they use. And, it, like, right. I, I'm so confused. It's like, who are we trying to actually, what are we actually trying to do here? Are we trying to right. make ourselves somehow feel purer? Or yeah. are we actually, or are we trying to care for the people who we're talking about? And that, that is a, maybe that's a bad example, but I, I find it to be. I
1: mean, I think it's a really good example because, you know, for as many people I have that are a part of the community are all different opinions, right? About what they want. Right. And Um, I think that's why we need to, to know people and love them and be friends with them. And, and also, I mean, I think it's a really valid question, Dave, like when we're in these bigger rooms, like what is that code switching looking like for us internally? Why are we doing it? Who are we doing it for? And are we all? And I think the answer is yes. Just like anxious little, you know, as we say in my family, when people are misbehaving, anxious little peanut butts just running on a treadmill.
0: I talk about this because this is interesting in, uh, in for a lot of reasons, but one of the um, cornerstones of this uh, um – Issue of the magazine, of the Sickness and Health magazine, is uh, an article by my younger brother Simeon called "The Cure of Souls: Theory of Change in Christian Ministry," and it's um, it gets down to what, how, how you believe people actually change. Do they change through linguistic means? Do they change through shame? Do they change through being told what to do? Do they change through love? Like, what, what do people change ever, or do they not change at all? But this is this article is. I would just call it man- almost mandatory reading. It's fantastic. Um, he writes this, What is theory of change? Basically, it's the strategy that an organization uses when it wants to make some change in the world through its activities. It's usually used in relation to nonprofits. So, you know. Um Asking an organization about its theory of change is a way of getting it to articulate more explicitly what outcome the organization wants to achieve in the world, what strategy it is going to use to accomplish that outcome, and what assumptions the organization is making that lead it to think that strategy X will result in outcome Y. And he wants to talk about this in terms of Christianity and how people in churches, he talks about how some people ascribe to a sacramental theory of change and how the sacraments sort of imbue you with the grace you need to, to improve and to sort of live a godlier life. But he, says, he writes as one popular, uh, other popular theory of change, especially common in Protestant circles, is what I think of as the Christian information approach. The working idea, so far as I can tell, is that the most important thing in determining whether Christians thrive and flourish is how much contact they get with the Bible, As God's revelation, the Bible contains a great deal of information about what God is like and how Christians should live and about the good news of salvation. As in the case of sacramental participation, the Christian information theory of ministry is built on several assumptions that are not always explicitly articulated. First, it assumes assumes, very reasonably to my mind that the Bible is God's inspired word. Second, and I think more controversially, this approach often subtly assumes that people are shaped above all by contact with Christian knowledge or information. Although we know that giving advice to people rarely works very well in life, we have an idea that when the advice or information is based in scripture, the normal rules don't apply. Secular advice to giving doesn't work, but somehow when you give advice from the Bible, we expect that the heart will change and we will be transformed. But there are several other popular theories of change. Um, But what he's trying to say is that we all have some sort of operative theology, some idea of how people change. You know, this applies to people outside the church. Um... So, for example, if you think the sacraments, and especially the Eucharist, are central in ministry, then that means that whether you are conscious of it or not, you are committed to a certain theological assumptions about how the Eucharist mediates divine grace to the human will. Likewise, if if you are a pastor who spends upward of 20 hours per week preparing lengthy exegetical sermons, then chances are your ministry assumes that people are most effectively transformed through deep contact with the contents of the Bible. Now, stop there. We're going to read a little bit more, but I want to know um where does this resonate i mean theories of change i think uh we're all trying to get other people we're getting we're trying to get ourselves to change we're trying to get other people to change partly to be in less pain as we've talked about here um the Christian information uh, strategy is one that I've certainly been exposed to at some some length. And um, he's not saying, by the way, that he's yet, yet to weigh in on what he thinks is the right one. Uh, we'll get to that. But um, I've found that sometimes... Uh, yeah, trying to just give people the right information or educate them in the right way doesn't always lead to the result I, I intended. And that's very much explicit in Simeon's article. Um, what do you guys think?
1: I mean, I just think only God can change us. So it's hard for me to, I don't know my, it's, it's such an interest. I, I was there for this talk. This is the talk he gave, but yeah, and it was brilliant. Um, But I think it's hard for me to think that I um am... an agent of change at all in ministry.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, do you get into ministry to change people? Is that this part of what? what no, the, yeah.
1: I think I get into ministry to offer people relief. I think that's like the most compelling thing to me. I mean, you know, when I first started at rice, I remember talking to the students who interviewed me and they were like, well, what's the first th- thing you would want to do? And I was like, well, like if we've a ministry fair. I just want to like get a giant banner that goes across the table that says rest. Hmm. And they were like, Ooh. Um, but, and I've never done that, but I sort of, ha- th- that's sort of been every single thing I've done. Mm. Right. Does that make sense in my job? So, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I, um, and I, I did not get into ministry to change people. But it
0: could be that you, th- that, that underneath that is the idea that people will feel better or th- if they could rest. Like if they, that, that's, that would be a right, good but thing like, for them.
1: That's a, that's up to Jesus. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about, I don't know. Like, I don't, it's always interesting to me that there are entire denominations that are, you know, and I, I feel like ours is like this, but it's more like, get out there and change the world, you know? And then there are also wide swaths of Christianity that are like, get out there and change yourself. Mm. And, you know, to me, it's just the same thing. Change, yeah. It's like impossible. It's the,
0: it's the law either way. <laughs>
1: it's the law. Yeah, it's the law either way. So. RJ,
0: what do you think? You, uh, this, by the way, uh, he won't say this, but RJ's church was just written up in a denominational publication hey. as an example of a church that's growing by leaps and bounds. So the, yes, the RJ, RJ. Heyman glory story continues. Great and goodness. maybe he understands these things better than... Uh, I'm just trying to give you a little authority.
1: RJ, tell us oh, what yeah, you're so doing. Much authority. Tell us what you're doing, RJ.
2: Uh, I just think it's uh, not
1: arresting. Sp- I can tell you right that. Yeah, it's not, it's um,
2: not I tried this week. I did, but, but by <laughs> the, but, you know, as uh, as Fitz Allison used to say, the good Lord is going to get his Sabbath one way or another. Um, but uh, Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, but but as Jesus says to Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it chooses, where it comes from, where it's going. Nobody knows. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So. Sometimes the Spirit works through communion, sometimes through music, sometimes through prayer, through Bible, through preaching, through fellowship, through service, through who knows how, Mm. right? And so, Mm -hmm. you just kind of do what you're told to do. (laughs) You know, they devoted themselves to uh, the breaking of bread and prayers, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and day by day, the Lord added to their number try to keep the main thing the main thing talk to, get people in touch with Jesus talk about Jesus a lot because Y'all, he he doesn't he was have any notes
1: he's just like he's just like Riffing. Listen, he's just like rattling the scripture <laughs> off like just rattling it off.
2: you, uh, you know, know I no, will say no pastors
1: in his office i
2: have more I, I i probably have more faith in the holy spirit to work through the bible than i've had at any other point in my life because uh. i see it i see it happening and i hear mm-hmm. stories about it happening. And I, and I, so, you know, I'm not saying that's the only, definitely not the only way, um, but it, yeah, people want to know what's in the Bible and they want to know about Jesus. And Jesus doesn't really need us to defend him. Um, he can kind of, he speaks for himself and does his own work, you know. So those are my two cents. Well, S-
0: Sim is all about. What he calls the Augustinian theory of change, which is Ooh. one that, I mean, frankly, undergirds what uh, I think a lot of what we talk about on this podcast, and I'll just, I'm going to lay it out for people, because sometimes it's helpful just to say the thing. He says, uh, there are three basic theological assumptions at the heart of an Augustinian theory of change. This, again, applies to people, whether you're in ministry or not. First, human beings are not driven by knowledge or will, but by desire. We are creatures of the heart, creatures of love. That's number one. Second, the human heart is very hard to change. (laughs) It strongly resists direct efforts to change it. The truth of this point is easy to demonstrate. Have you ever tried to change someone's mind about politics through rational argument? Have you Mm. ever tried to talk someone out of loving the person they have fallen in love with? I rest my case. Third, human beings are wired in such a way that judgment kills love. When we feel judged, we hide our love away, we put up our walls, we resist. If your theory of change depends in any way on the idea that telling someone what is wrong with them will lead to them changing what is wrong with them, you will be sorely ineffective. He goes on to say that he thinks that this has basically can translate into three different principles for us in life. He says At first it means the heart of uh, Christian ministry or I would say Christian life is the facilitation of an emotional encounter with the God revealed in Jesus. I say this without condition or reservation. If you are not successfully engaging with people's feelings and desires with their anxieties, their loves and their pain, then you're just playing a game with Christian words. You're not doing ministry. In the context of actual ministry, this means that the best theology and truest Christian information are just ghosts and vapor until they are communicated in a language the heart can hear. Second, the Augustinian approach assumes that effective ministry always must deal with the fact of human resistance to judgment and law. It means that you won't end a sermon or a church service with a moral exhortation or a set of behavioral guidelines. But finally, an Augustinian theory of change means that technologies of the heart are important. Novels, stories, movies, illustrations, these are powerful technologies of the heart, more powerful than mere words or ideas. The reason we love stories, the reason we love art and music, the reason such things can be so transformative when we draw on them in ministry is that they know how to speak the strange electric language of the heart. And this means that music is hugely important, by the way. Indeed, a lot of ministries have quite bad theories of change. They're still doing a lot of good in the world, still helping people because their worship music is doing the heavy lifting. If we are honest, we all know that a very average worship leader can get pe- get through to people more easily than the most brilliant preacher if the preacher is relying on the Christian information approach. Agree, disagree, caveats.
1: Uh, like we're gonna come out here and disagree with him, man. Okay,
0: <laughs> he's smarter than I am. Um. He's one hundred percent right. Yeah,
2: I mean, yeah. I, I just, I, you never, yeah, you never change anyone's mind um, by addressing their intellectual, uh, um, addressing them intellectually. You know, the only way anyone ever comes to believe in Jesus is because they want to believe in Jesus. And then all their intellectual questions are very much secondary. It's, it, it's mop-up work.
0: Yeah. I mean, he know? does yeah. elsewhere in the article outline a very, very high view of the Holy Spirit as active in doing things that none of us can do. And that's that's really what matters here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you have a lot of – the frustration is born out, and I tried to talk about this in Low Anthropology, but frustration is really borne out when you think that telling people what to do um, will somehow give them the ability to do it.
1: It's I just – I always think there's a thing under the thing, and I just never actually think it's that we want to tell people what to do. I think we just want to avoid vulnerability in a relationship, mm. and so that's what we go to. I really believe that. Like, I believe that that we just – we don't want to deal with our own pain. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and we certainly don't want to deal with the real pain of others. Right. So instead we just give them a directive and, you know, I met somebody recently who's in college ministry and I don't know how successful their ministry is or not, but I was talking about all the one-on-ones I do. And they were like, I've never done a one-on-one in the history of my ministry. And I was like, how do you, how do you know them? Mm. How do you love them? How do you know what keeps them up at night? What do they pray for? Like, what you know um it's such a huge part of the calling is just to be present to pain and you can't really be present to pain unless you've also acknowledged your own mm. We're just all pain avoidant weirdos, right? I mean, that's all, that's it, right? And, I, and I'm and i certainly as guilty of that as anybody else is. But my highest iteration, my highest hope for ministry is that that I'm not pain avoidant, that I'm present, and that I can point to to Jesus. And honestly, RJ's answer is the best answer, and it sounds like it's where Simeon's headed, um, and he's the Holy Spirit guy. But it is so out of our power, right, to to change people. It's so up to God.
0: In other words, this amazing video someone sent us this week of Jim, Jim Carrey talking about God being revealed in pain and like Mm -hmm. either pain is either a doorway to resentment or it's a doorway to uh, gratitude. And the, the, the God revealed in Jesus Christ seems to seems to imply that pain is not a is not the direction away from God. <laughs> um, and that in fact, that's somehow reconnected to the experience of, of grace experience of, of God in some, in, in comp- not comp- everly entirely understandable way.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I'm going to keep talking about the, this is like RJ always rattles off like eight Bible passages. And I only know the one I'm about to preach on because I've read it. (laughs) But, um, the, the, the whole thing with the, the blind man who was healed at the waters of Siloam, um, you know, what's interesting to me is that at the end of that passage, so Jesus heals him. The Pharisees are constantly coming and being like, are you sure this is the guy who healed you? Are you, you know, goes to his parents. You sure this is the guy that healed your son and at the end of the passage he's excommunicated from the synagogue that's really clear mm-hmm. and and that's the end of the story and i was reading this commentary that was so beautiful it was like jesus does not solve all of our pain mm. right jesus just promises that we're not alone in it
0: rj what are you you're you're the guy what do you, what do you think you're the guy rj
1: you're the pain you're the pain guy you're the Come pain
2: right. growth guy uh, no 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 it's it's I don't know. I'm just thinking how good this is and it's causing me to reflect on how I'm doing ministry right now and trying to make sure that it's, um, kind of in line with these truths. And then Mm. I also think, I mean, I honestly, I, I, I count on the Holy Spirit to shut me down when I'm on the wrong track, you know, Yeah. because I can't get this right all the time. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I often pray, like, Lord, go ahead of me, be with me, and then please, like, clean up my messes mm-hmm. and open doors that I need to walk through and close doors that I need to avoid, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I was thinking about that, that I, I, I feel like I'm in the place that I'm in my ministry right now where I'm just kind of doing my best to move forward in the way that I think I'm supposed to mm-hmm. and be faithful and and just trust that if this is not the way I'm supposed to go... Uh, God will make that powerfully clear.
1: Yeah, you
2: know, yeah, you know. Um, but I think this is an, this is a very good word from uh, from Simeon. I think an in- incredibly helpful reminder to me as a preacher and minister and pastor. And yeah, all it's,
0: that. I, I don't want it to. See, it's not a very technical essay, though. Otherwise, it kind of comes off that the way that I read it. I I think. Um, it's just wonderful, and the way he ends it is is fantastic. And and for those of you who are, who are frustrated, or we looking to for a, maybe some fresh inspiration, it's a it's a great place to start. But I wanted to end here with there was um and I'll just read it. There's a w- wonderful essay that appeared on Mockingbird by Francis Pufford called "Where's the Next Brick." And I'm not going to get into the whole thing it's a, it's an extended metaphor it's it's beautifully beautifully written but he the way he characterizes Christianity and the gospel is not as as a um mode of change even or as uh as uh, yeah, as, as a kind of a tool to, to enact certain ends. He calls it a song of liberation, a startling declaration that power, that love, that justice, that order, that God, the creator of all things, weren't what we thought they were, but came closest to us in paradoxes, wisdom came in foolishness, strength in weakness, sovereignty over the immense empire of matter in helpless self-sacrifice, in a choking man brought to death by a shrugging government. What's that about? How will that help me be thinner, richer, stronger, more successful? It won't. It will only help you to be kinder, braver, more tolerant of our inevitable imperfections and more hopeful, more convinced that the worst that can happen to us as humans is not the last word, because there is a love we should try to copy in our small ways, which never rests, never gives up, and is never defeated.
2: Yes.
1: That's so good. My gosh, I can't believe we got that and Simeon in the same podcast. That's so good. I mean, that's like the kind of stuff you just, it reminds me of, I've referenced it here recently because somebody sent an email to me asking where it was, but the uh, Stephen Ting thing, you know, the old, old story. Like, it's the kind of thing you go back to that's like, oh, right, this is what this is. I mean, it's, you know, people ask me all the time, why is it called Mockingbird, why is it called Mockingbird? And, you know, it's like. We, we say the same, same thing. We repeat God's grace, right, in the world where we see it, but also, like, it's a repeated story over and over because we forget so easily. Mm-hmm. Um, we forget.
0: We forget. Well, that's, uh, uh, yeah, Sp- who could remind us better than Francis Bufford? I mean, good Lord. That, yeah. That, that... And this, this idea, this restless,
2: pursuing love. You know, mm. surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That at the end of the day, you know, how does change happen? Um, God does it, and who the hell knows? Right. <laughs> you know, so, right. <laughs> so, right. So, so praise God, you know, we try and fail constantly, and sometimes, you know, by by His grace alone we get it right, but at the end of the day, um, the end of the story is not in doubt, Because it's God who does these things, and not us. And it's just our joy and privilege to be part of what He's been doing for thousands of years and will do on into eternity.
0: Well, amen to that. Thank you guys so much for for being on today, and we'll hopefully we'll get together in another couple weeks. Thank you both. Awesome. See you then. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com, And we'd always love to hear from you at info@embird.com. Audio production for the mocking cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.